This is WOBC 91.5, Oberlin College and Community Radio, and you're listening to The Weekly, a roundtable show devoted to discussing current news and events happening in Oberlin. We've got a special show for you this week, where we'll interview Peggy Orenstein, a New York Times bestselling author, an Oberlin alum from the class of 1983. She's written widely about the socialization of girls and young women in America, especially as it relates to sexuality and public image. We'll be talking with her about all that and more this hour, but first, an update from WOBC News. You're listening to WOBC News. This is Tori Egler. In the warmer months, Oberlin's downtown streets are dotted with cheerful flower pots and boxes that maintain Oberlin's charm and quaintness. Yet who are the caretakers of these budding flora? On campus, there's an urban legend that these flower caretakers only make their appearances under the cover of darkness, specifically between the hours of 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. I set out to discover who had heard of these undercover plant caretakers and to see if I could debunk the myth. Have you heard of this urban legend that the Oberlin, the municipal flower pots on the public streets are only watered between 2 and 3 a.m.? I have not heard about that. <laughs> so have you ever seen anyone watering those plants? No. And I've felt concerned about it. You know the flower pots in downtown Oberlin? Yes. Have you heard about that urban legend? No. You mean like flower pots outside of all the stores? Yeah, like the hanging flower pots, like okay. the flower yeah. boxes, I guess. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's kind of a mystery. I've never seen someone watering them. Yeah, me neither. That's the thing. But they're always there. Right. They're always blooming. They're but, outside. So... Right. Mm-hmm. They get rained on. Right, right, right. So, which, to, you know, is the way it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> very true, very true. Then I ran into Jake Burstein, a fourth year, who had something truly shocking to tell me. So you've seen people watering the plants. Oh, yeah. Okay, so what time of day? Really early in the morning. 3 a.m.? 4. 4 a.m. 4 to 5. 4 to 5 a.m.? Yeah. Okay, because I've been told, like, the urban legend on this campus is that, like, those flower pots only get watered between the hours of 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. Hmm, that's not but true. But you saw, you saw Can someone. Can confirm 4 to 5. After hearing Jake's in-person encounter with the flower caretakers, I managed to get in touch with Jeff Bauman, the head of the Oberlin Public Works Department, who truly cleared things up for everyone. It may be an urban legend, but it actually is is true. Uh, We allow our guys to to flex their schedule a little bit. No one really likes to to do it, so we trade those responsibilities on a weekly basis. It's a seven-day assignment uh, to come in and water. It takes three or four or five hours, depending on how, how dry it's been. And so we allow them to come in, and they do, anytime between about midnight and four in the morning so that they can finish that work before there are vehicles in the way because, as as you know, downtown there's diagonal parking and that can preclude access. So they drive parallel to the curb and water the baskets and keep going. There you have it. As Jeff said, there you have it. The myth of the flowerpot caretakers is officially confirmed. I'm Tori Eichler, and you're listening to WOBC News. Thursday, October 12, 2017. Oberlin Heritage Center presents Movie Night at the Apollo, Back to the Future. 7 p.m. in the Apollo Theater. Come to the Apollo and enjoy a lively, if not always accurate, romp through time with a showing of the science fiction, adventure, comedy, film, Back to the Future. 
Tickets are $10 adults, $7 college students, and $5 for those 18 and under. Ever heard of the Sexual Information Center? The SIC, located in Wilder 203, provides at-cost safer sex supplies, gender-affirming products, confidential peer support, and comprehensive sex ed classes to the Oberlin student body and broader community. The SIC is open on Sundays from 4 to 6 p.m. and Mondays through Thursdays from 4 to 6 and 8 to 10 p.m. Check out their Facebook page at Oberlin SIC for more details. The Kendall United Fellowship meets Saturday, October 14th at 10.15 a.m. in the Kendall Auditorium. The speaker will be Bob Longsworth, who presents Matthew Arnold and Mark Twain at First Church about their lectures and why they came to Oberlin. Food and fellowship begin at 9.30 a.m. The Pottery Co-op is a fully functioning pottery studio equipped for wheel throwers and sculptors. For $30 a semester, you get unlimited use of clay and 24-7 co-op hours. We currently have four Excos and office hours every day of the week where you can come in and learn with some instruction. The studio is located directly behind Mud Library across the parking lot. For more info, join the Oberlin Pottery Co-op Facebook page or email simonprince at sprince.oberlin.edu. Welcome back to The Weekly, a roundtable show devoted to discussing current news and events in Oberlin. I'm your host, Johan Kappert. Each week, we'll discuss one or two topics uniquely relevant to the Oberlin community, drawing on our campus's uniquely strong pool of journalists and other students to discuss, debate, and analyze what ha what's happening here on campus and beyond. Be advised, we will be talking about the existence of sex and sexuality on the air this hour, so if you have small children listening, you should maybe turn off the program. Unfortunately, our interview this week is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any callers, but we always welcome listener feedback and ideas via email as well, so please reach out. Uh, now to our show. Joining me this week is Daniel Marcus, Managing Editor at the Oberlin Review, India Wood, a Senior Trainer with Preventing and Responding to Sexual Misconduct, PRISM, and a Facilitator for Our Whole Lives at the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship in Oberlin. Last, but of course not least, we are thrilled to be talking with Peggy Orenstein, New York Times bestselling author of Girls and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, and many more, a nationally respected thinker, writer, and a distinguished Oberlin alum. Thank you all so much for being here. <laughs> Thanks, Johan. Yeah, thank, thank you, Johan. Yeah. Um, well, I guess just to start off, um, we were wondering, Peggy, you graduated from Oberlin in 1983. I did. <laughs> yes. Um, and we're so glad With you With Noah returned. and <laughs> Abraham. And <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not quite. Um, but but um, since you have yeah. the, the benefit of hindsight, we were wondering sort of what your experience then um, was like and how you think the culture, especially sort of surrounding sex um, on campus, has changed since then. Hmm. Well, for one thing, Oberlin was dry when I was here, so that was different. I don't know when that stopped, but the whole town was dry, so our entire social life was conducted sober. That was different. Um, you know, it's interesting, because when I, I've noticed that when I went around, and I hope we can, we can go back and sort of talk about what I was doing with Girls and Sex and what that book is, but when I was going around with the book, I could always tell when somebody was right around my age, because... 
in the Q&A period, they would suddenly, um, they, would, they would raise their hand and I would call them and they would, they would take their fist, put it down and then punch it up in the air and say, whatever happened to, I'm responsible for my own orgasm. And that was, and I would laugh because that was part of the question that I had when I first started doing this book, like, whatever happened to I'm responsible for my own orgasm? And so there was, there was like this kind of culture, particularly at Oberlin when I was um, on campus, of um, female sexual empowerment that came, and, and the idea that it was our political duty to enjoy sex. Mm. And I think that that came from, and I really, I tried really hard to work this into the book, but I couldn't because my editor kept saying, you guys were really weird. (laughs) (laughs) But I know, right? We're overland. But there was this, like we all went as freshmen. I'm assuming that girls don't do this anymore. We also call ourselves women, not girls, but we went into um, Wilder, into a room in Wilder. And I don't remember who led this, but we all took these plastic, um, specula, you know, the thing they use for a gynecological exam, and a flashlight and a mirror, and we all pulled our pants off and examined our vulvas together and looked at our cervixes with our specula and flashlight forever after one of my Oberlin friends, when, when we got bored, like I was an English major and we got bored in English class, um, she would look at, because I said, you know, your cervix looks kind of like a nose with a little dent in it, so when we were bored, she would look across the room at me and rub her <laughs> nose. <laughs> So there was, you know what I mean? But there was this like culture that, um, and I think it came from, not to belabor the point, but it came from, I found out that we were the first daughters of second wave feminism. And there was this idea in second wave feminism of um, taking back um, female sexuality from Freudian ideas, which were mm-hmm. all about this like notion, false notion of the vaginal orgasm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of, I think that that was what was trickling down to us. But what what surprised me when I went, out um, now, and I can't say whether this is true per se of Oberlin or specifically of Oberlin because my research wasn't really here, mm-hmm. um, but that the young women that I spoke with, while they presented as really sexy, there was this disconnect between that presentation of sexiness and an authentic feeling in their bodies and a comfort with their bodies so that there was like this idea that they could engage in sexual behavior but that they didn't necessarily enjoy it. Very cool. I was laughing because uh, there's a class, there's the XCO class, uh-huh. uh, SexCo, and they do do like a, they like, they still do that? everyone in the room and they like use a speculum on like another student and they like, well, like be like, this is a cervix and it's like really funny, but it's like more formal, I suppose, wow. than what you that were describing. That makes me happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Awesome. That's That's kind of amazing that, that was happening because in my head like when I think about it I'm like 1980s it's like yes there is empowerment happening but like that's not that's not something that when I think of the 80s is like there in my mind like people are that empowered that feels to me like a very contemporary idea so it's interesting because like I think on our campus we have a lot of like there's a lot of discussion of like sexual empowerment among everyone and how that all works but it's interesting to hear that coming from you because it, it strikes me and I guess it shouldn't but it strikes me as sort of a newfangled idea yeah no I mean we had like you know I'm it was the era of the joy of sex and mm. you know all these things were coming out so there was this really there was a really progressive idea around mm-hmm. that and there were a lot of you know a lot of guys who were willing to take that journey with us which yeah. was really cool um do you think that was something that was like unique to Oberlin or somewhat you know, unique 
that's what I that's why I kept messing with it when I was writing the book. I kept thinking, I don't know, is this just like my weird little cohort of girls or was this like I mean, it certainly was, like I said, so what happened in the, before that, in the 70s, was there was this pamphlet, like the zero, like the equivalent of something going viral, right, was mm-hmm. that they mimeographed a pamphlet and passed <laughs> it around. Um, and it was called um, The Myth of the Vaginal Orgasm. Mm-hmm. And it was this whole essay about the clitoris and the myth of the vaginal orgasm. I'm actually right now reviewing this, these two books for the New York Times mm. mag, um, book review on... Um, I'm not supposed to say that because the people aren't supposed to know I'm I'm reviewing their books, so don't tell, okay? Um, but on, on uh, the history of feminist sex stores and the history of vi- vibrators. Mm. Mm. And actually, the first feminist sex store, which was called Good Vibrations, was founded by an OB. Oh, wow. Yeah, no which I just Very found cool. out Yeah, wow. while I was. Joni Blank went to Oberlin, so that was really cool to find out. Cool. Um, but And maybe that's why we were doing that. I don't know. But the, but but anyway, so that, that there was this whole... Um, thing going on in the 70s um, with like my mom's generation of um, you know that, that of, of discovering the clitoris and discovering the orgasm and all this kind of stuff and this idea one of the things that I'm always really interested in language is in, is in language and mm-hmm. like I get very I got very um, obsessed with the phrase catching feelings mm-hmm. which is, you know like like it's a di- <laughs> like it's a disease like yeah. it's an STI <laughs> You know, like you catch gonorrhea or catch syphilis, feelings. you catch feelings. Ew, Ew. <laughs> there's got to be a treatment for that, right? Okay. So I, I got very interested in the idea of like the difference between um, what we we used to say you had an orgasm, not that somebody gave you an orgasm. Oh, interesting. And I and that to me felt like a really interesting shift. Um, I didn't talk about that in the book either. This is also you know other stuff that I've been thinking about, but but that that felt political to me. That that was something that you and and when I talked to girls, you know, I was talking to just to quickly say, so I, so I interviewed seventy young women for this book between the ages of fifteen and twenty, and they were um, um, all either in college or college bound because I, I wanted to talk to this sort of demographic that we think of as being empowered and the beneficiaries of feminism and all of this. Um, and when I would talk to them about masturbation, um, a lot of them. So what what we know statistically is that 40% of young women ages 14 to 17 have never masturbated, not even once. Um, Again, not to call out my editor, but my editor's like, that can't be right. (laughs) Look, okay, I get it. It wasn't you, but yeah, that's the stats. It's, you know, it's true. I Um, totally believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so when I would talk to them about that, they'd say, um, well, I have a boyfriend to do that. And I would think... Not only does that put your sexual pleasure in the hands of somebody else, but I mean literally in the hands of somebody else, but nothing personal, but it's a you know, it's a it's a teenage boy who prob- whose idea is probably, you know, to like rummage around in there like he's looking for his car keys. You know, I mean it's not yeah. gonna be a great experience. So yeah. it seemed really uh, whereas girls would also tell me that guys on the other hand would say that they didn't that, you know, if you were going to do something, give me a blowjob because I can masturbate myself. I don't need you to give me a handjob. So mm-hmm. there was like this real difference between the ways that boys and girls approached understanding their own bodies. Super interesting. Yeah. You sort of mentioned, um, going back a little bit, like language and the power of mm-hmm. how that works. And it sort of leads into our second 
sort of thing that we wanted to talk about, which is hookup culture on campus. And like, I was just thinking when you said that, like the, literally the phrase hook up and what that, like how that is and how that sounds and like right. how that makes us feel and, and <laughs> all the things associated with that, like catching feelings. Right. So I guess to start, I mean, do you have a definition that you think of hookup culture as being or? I do. I do. But I actually want, can I go back for a second to the yeah. body thing? Cause of course. I, cause I wanted to just say that, that, you know, when we talk about girls, so, so actually I want to back up two steps. First of all, the framework of this book that I talked about was this idea of intimate justice, which I think we should get up top. Yeah. Um, because, Sex has, as, as I've been sort of indicating, has these political as well as personal implications, just like, you know, um, who does the dishes in your home or, mm-hmm. or who vacuums the rug or any of these things. And it brings up similar issues of economic inequality, um, violence, personal and mental health, uh, personal, uh, sorry, physical and mental health, all of these things. And intimate justice is, asks us, and this was sort of a frame for the book for me, to talk about, to to ask questions like who is entitled to engage in a behavior who's entitled to enjoy it um who is the primary beneficiary how does each partner define good enough mm. which is really salient mm. i think in the hookup culture <laughs> yeah, totally. um and and um uh i can't remember the other thing i was gonna say but anyway that that's enough um and and so you know i think those are really tricky and sometimes traumatic questions to confront, and they're tricky and traumatic for adult women to confront, mm-hmm. let alone young women. But what for me, what I kept coming back to was this idea that I didn't want young women's sexual early sexual experience to be something that they had to get over. Mm-hmm. So that was a big motivator for me. And then this other piece, which, um, and then I'll get to the hookup culture in a minute, but this other piece when we're talking about girls' silence in their body and silence in their own pleasure, one thing that I really thought a lot about was the ways that that started from the get-go. So when we have our babies, um, parents have a tendency in this country to name all their baby boys' body parts. So they'll at least say, like, here's your pee-pee or, you know, something. Um, But with girls, we go right from navel to knees. And we leave this, you know, that whole situation in between kind of an unnamed territory. And then if they're lucky enough not to be in an abstinence-only community, um, they go into their puberty ed class and they find out that... um, you know, boys have erections and ejaculations, and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy, which mm. not exactly the same. No. And they see that sort of internal diagram, you know, remember of the girl's body that looks like a like a steer's head or a Georgia <laughs> O'Keeffe painting or something? <laughs> and they never, and then it grays out, right? So you never see, they never say vulva. Even the vagina monologue, it's the vulva monologue, you know, they never say clitoris, goodness knows. Um, You know, so then no wonder so few girls know what that is and masturbate. And then they go into their partnered uh, encounters and we think that somehow they're going to be able to advocate for themselves, that they're going to be able to know what their wants or their needs or their, um, you know, limits are or, or you know, even know what those might be, let alone articulate them. So we really set girls up in that way. And so then from there, we go to hookup culture, right? And which which has aged down. So now it's really a high school phenomenon, not a college <sighs> phenomenon. Um, and what hookup culture, I mean, there's always been casual sex, you know, nothing personal, but you guys didn't invent that. <laughs> what? <laughs> Your parents Sorry. were doing it. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. I know, right? 
Um, but uh, in fact, I know some of your parents out there. And I can tell you. Um, so uh, that that it's not that it's not casual sex, but casual sex used to be sort of the the um, exception. Um, and now the idea of the hookup culture is that it's more of the uh, that that um, sex is the precursor rather than the product of intimacy mm. of emotional intimacy, and that it is the um, primary way into a relationship. So that's what has really changed on campus. Not that people sometimes have casual sex; that has always happened. Mm -hmm. wow. I'm just gonna. Break that's a in, ten minute yeah. uh, answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's that's very good because I mean one of the things we had been talking about and sort of I think is broadly acknowledged is that hookup and the term hookup is so sort of amorphous that no one really yeah. knows what it is and that's right. that's you know well a hookup design. right what does yeah. that mean mm -hmm. a hookup might mean that you kiss somebody a hookup right. might mean that that you had oral sex it might, and in fact statistically what is it i'm a little rusty right now because i just got off my summer break but um uh one third about a third of hookups are um, kissing only, about a third include oral sex. So what people would define include, as, like, I yeah. ended up with so-and-so. Yeah, what they mean. Okay. Yeah, so really, the only maybe, I can't remember if it's 25 or 30% um, are intercourse. Um, but it's not what people think. And it is, it is purposely amorphous, so that mm -hmm. people don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And people, young people tend to vastly overestimate what their peers are doing mm -hmm. in hookups. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of this mysteriousness to it all of like, what's a hookup? Like, I don't know, what's dating? Like, right. it kind of everything becomes more mysterious and like, right. this. And so when I'm interviewing somebody on this and they'll say, well, yeah, and then I hooked him, I go, wait, stop. Every time you use that word, I'm going to say, what, what does do that mean? mean? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's always interesting. And it goes back to like the unspeakableness of like sex and like pleasure, like, and how hookups like are kind of defining it as like, oh, I hooked up with so-and-so is kind of adding to this idea of sex being unspeakable. Well, and I think it's also sex being about um, status. Mm. So when you hook up, and I think that might be particularly even more so for, for guys in a lot of places, that um, when you hook up, you know, you want full points from your peers for having done that. So as long as it's kind of like a little vague, mm -hmm. you know, you can get that. It's, it's interesting that you say that, actually, because... It reminds me of, and I don't, I don't really want to veer off into the whole trope of like locker room talk because we don't really need to do that. But I was a varsity athlete in high school, and it, it is a thing that exists. And one of the things that you would hear a lot in those kind of situations was we had sex. Like it, they were like there was a making it explicit mm. as as almost like a to make it more overt as to what you were saying as sort of a like type of conquest mm -hmm. uh -huh. kind of thing. Which, which always was kind of weird to me because I was like, like, why are you being so overt about it? Which I guess was in the context of people not saying that very often because really right. it should be sort of normalized and that should be okay to say and it shouldn't be a problem. But in the, in the way things were when I was growing, when I was in high school, like people didn't say that they had sex unless like they really wanted you to know. Right. You know. <laughs> a status thing. Oh, totally. It wasn't an intimacy thing. Yeah. It was status thing. Yeah. And yeah. it was also, it was like... I, I can't say I was privy to as many, like, intimate conversations among women, but it definitely felt like something that men said yeah. more often, which was, like, uncomfortable, mm -hmm. <laughs> personally. Yeah. 
I'm just going to break in here. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm. Uh, if you just tuned in, you were listening to The Weekly from WOBC 91.5, Oberlin College and Community Radio. We are uh, thrilled to be speaking with Peggy Orenstein, um, having a conversation about sex and sexuality on campus. Um, and I guess I was wondering, Peggy, uh, you are sitting with a red solo cup, um, <laughs> not entirely by accident. It's just um, water. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't worry about that. Um, it's clear anyway. Yeah. yeah. But we were wondering, um, you know, alcohol and drinking culture is so much a part of like contemporary, you know, campus sexuality and things like that. W- what did you find, um, talking to students? Still, I'm smiling because I still can't believe you can drink at Oberlin. That just blows me away. Um, how did that happen? Um, I'll have to go to the archives and check yeah. out. I know. I'd really changed. be curious about when that changed and how they got it to change. And I think it was in the 90s. It must have been. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, so <laughs> alcohol isn't just like, it's, it's not just part of the, it, it fuels, it's endemic mm. to the hookup culture because you need it in order to... Um, anesthetize yourself to the mm. point where you will, first of all, you know, sexually engage with somebody that you don't know very well. Um, and it, so it's not just a lubrication. It's, it, it's a necessity. Um, and uh, no, so this is where I'm getting, I'm, I'm like getting rusty on my, on, on my thing. But it's, um, but, you know, alcohol also, it creates a situation where, um, one of the things that interested me about the hookup, and, and I, I'm joking about, you know, Oberlin being, I mean, Oberlin was dry, but it was one of the things that really interested me because um, I didn't come from a campus culture that, where we had sex drunk. I mean, we just didn't. We couldn't. Um, you know, maybe somebody got, you know, some grain alcohol a couple times a year or something, but it was really very rare. Um, so... This idea that, um, if, if, and, and it just seemed like sex, what, how, how good could the sex be when you're both hammered? You know? Yeah, you're both, you're all, the, the, you, you yeah. viewers, out, listeners out there can't see them all going thumbs down and <laughs> shaking their heads. So I was really curious about, um, about how that works. So, and then, you know, with the issues of consent, obviously, you get into a situation where if you have to be drunk in order to have, sexual contact with somebody, but having sexual contact with somebody when they're drunk is inherently non-consensual, that's a problem too. And who draws those lines and where do those lines get drawn? And all of that, I think, has greatly complicated issues of consent. And in saying that, I don't mean to say that we, that those issues did not exist when I was a college student, because Lord knows they did. But I think, you know, I have this, um, hmm, actually, I have, I, my, my, I, my roommate, when I was at Oberlin, was um, the most beautiful girl on campus. She was just, and is, stunningly beautiful. And guys were always just like flinging themselves at her. And not just students, professors. Because back then, that was not a problem. Um, So she went to some, some, uh, I don't know, does Royal Shakespeare still come here? No. no. Royal Shakespeare used to come on campus every other year, mm-hmm. um, a, a group of actors, and one of them invited her to his house for dinner. And I was saying, look, 
he's not inviting you because, you know, he's inviting you because you're the prettiest girl on campus. She got really mad at me. She's like, no, no, he loves my brain. He thinks my brain is interesting. I was like, no, he doesn't. Um, and so then she went. And of course, I came home that night and she was in, you know, she was sobbing and she had not been assaulted, but but he had attempted to assault her. And um, and the response, I am mortified to say, was that I said, I told you so. Mm. And the next day, I have this notebook, my you know, those Oberlin notebooks, I don't know if you still have them, where my friend and I, and we're all still really close friends, my friend and I were writing back and forth in class in this notebook, um, which, you know, 1983 version of texting, yeah. and um, <laughs> saying, you know, why didn't she know better? She should have known that was going to mm. happen. You know, so it wasn't that that stuff didn't happen, it's that we internalized it, blamed ourselves, um, you know didn't recognize it for what it was. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, so I think that's a huge, it's huge progress that that's no longer something that, and even a few years later, I guess in the mid-90s, one of my Oberlin friends called me up because his niece had been assaulted on campus mm. and the school was doing nothing mm. um, under that administration and he was hoping that as somebody at that point I'd already had a book out and I was pretty prominent and he was hoping that as a prominent alum who wrote about girls that I could step in and demand further action from the school, which I did, and, you know, still nothing happened. Wow. She ended up withdrawing. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting to hear how, like, how the response to sexual assault has kind of changed over time here. Because it I think has. We definitely do a lot less victim blaming, in my experience, yeah. uh, at Oberlin. But I think alcohol definitely has just really changed the way that that sexual assault occurs on campus and the way that we talk about it. Um, as a, a peer sexual educator here, when it comes to, like, we do a training for all the incoming students and we talk to them about how you can have sex while you're uh, intoxicated, but it's, like, against the policy to have sex while you're um, incapacitated. Yeah. Um, and a lot of incoming students have a really hard time with that distinction. Right. Um, because they just don't know their limits yet. They don't know their friends' limits. Um, and so it kind of, like... It necessitates people knowing what their limits are, um, and it's really hard to to explain in a really comprehensive way because a lot of students want hard rules. They want to know like when it's not okay. Right. Um, and with things as complicated as alcohol, something that's been ever since it's been invented has always kind of been associated with sex in a lot of ways and sexuality. It's hard to to be like a lot of students want you to say no, you can't have sex while you're drinking or doing drugs. Right. And we can't. It's just not. Oberlin has like recognized that's not a realistic expectation. Right. To hold students to. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. Yeah. So. Do you, do you think it's paralleled, because I talk to my parents about this sometimes, about like how alcohol is different for me than it was for them. Do you think there's a parallel thing happening with not only the culture of sex, but also the culture of alcohol among young people and how those two things are maybe interplaying? I don't know. You know, I think... Um, there's not a higher percentage of young people who drink now mm -hmm. than there were was like I mean the high the, actually the high was in the 90s mm -hmm. um, but those who do drink drink more mm -hmm. per episode yeah. particularly um, girls so and because girls and I don't in this in saying this I am not Again, I'm not I'm not putting onus or responsibility on girls, but biologically, female bodies metabolize alcohol differently. Right. So not just because we're smaller, but for other reasons too. And so drink for drink, we get drunker faster. Yeah. 
So when so there's that piece I think has changed somewhat, um, and that and I think that's been a game changer. And, and the linking, and I think that that idea that um, you need alcohol to sort of get to the point where you can where you can not have feelings um, is changed. And but what I think is the same is that I think alcohol. I know, I don't think, I know alcohol has always been the primary date rape drug, right? So, um, you know, everybody's, a, a, you know, young people are always afraid of roofies or whatever, but the but especially, um, and, you know, bless Oberlin for not having a Greek system, but especially in schools that have Greek systems where um, there's a whole different level of this, um, th- alcohol is the primary, you know, that th- the whole point is to get people too drunk to be able to make good decisions and and be able to um, incapacitate people so that they can't uh, effectively resist. Um, and that's and, and the other piece with alcohol, you know, we talk so much about alcohol in girls, but with guys, alcohol um, reduces, has been shown to reduce men's ability to read social cues. Um, they're less likely to hear no when they're drunk than they would be if they were sober. They're less likely to step in as bystanders if they see something going down. Um, and when they do assault, they're more likely to be more aggressive in the assault. So it's there's some real issues around um, how male drinking uh, affects assault as well. But see, then we get it. It's really easy to get back on. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, and one of the things that led me to write this book, was that I would go out with my last, my my previous book, um, Cinderella, my daughter, which was about um, the kind of what I called the princess industrial complex, the kind of uh, sexualization of all things little girlhood and the pinky pink culture, and telling girls that how they look is more important than than who they are, and all this kind of stuff. And I would talk about the importance of girls' sexual agency and sexual pleasure, and parents would all nod their head, nod their head, nod their head, and then they'd start talking about assault. And I thought, it's weirdly become easier to talk about sexual assault than to talk about sexual pleasure. And that we need to, like, not that that's not super important, super, super, super important, but it's really important to, like, I was not raped is a very low baseline for a sexual experience. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, consent is incredibly important, every, you know, no, no question, but we need to be talking about what it means to have a um, joyful, reciprocal, ethical sexual experience with young people. And that's the piece that in our culture we're really uncomfortable talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, and kind of, and alcohol also affects that, as you said before, yeah. like like, who has good sex when they're hammered? Nobody. Very few. You get whiskey dick. You get, I mean, you can't feel anything. All kinds of bad stuff happens. Absolutely. Yeah. You get numb from the neck down. <laughs> you get stupid. You get stupid. <laughs> and then you just fall asleep. And then you fall asleep. <laughs> not great. Um, I'm, so, not to... I don't want to steer the conversation completely about sexual assault. That's okay. It is why it's it, definitely it's something that I think a lot yeah. about a lot, a lot, um, and that colleges like across the country are thinking mm-hmm. a lot about. And we were just curious about, especially like right now with Betsy DeVos changing the the, yeah, the Title IX guidelines. Um, I've just been thinking about how how people, especially when it comes to sex, not only don't think that women have sexualities or like are entitled to like having good sex, but also that they like are believed to be liars a lot of the time right. and kind of how 
her new guidelines reflect that in some ways. Yeah. I'm just curious about how maybe this connects back to your work and your research. Well, it connects back to really to my like larger, you know, umbrella ideas in life of fighting back against the war on women's bodies, which is something, honestly, that I learned at Oberlin and that I've been doing ever since. I mean, I came out of Oberlin thinking, I'll either be a writer or a midwife, you know, and um, I think every woman who graduates Oberlin thinks that. Um, and so here I am, you know, I mean, I really think, I don't give birth. I mean, I don't know how people give birth. It's not too late. Not, you, know, yeah, I know. you could do both. I'm happy doing this, but that's, but, you know, but I do really think that these values were values that, that I really came to here. And um, when I think about DeVos, I take a step back and I think, okay, look at what's going on. First of all, she has, they have completely stripped funding from compre- what we think of as comprehensive sex ed, though it's really not, um, programs and has reinstated abstinence programs, which, I mean, okay, we don't live in an evidence-based society anymore. So <laughs> saying that there's the evidence shows, you know, is almost like, feels almost like spitting in the wind, but, yeah. right? Like, what's the point? But, but we know that, you know, decades of research have shown that abstinence education is not only totally ineffective in terms of it barely delays um, what they call sexual debut, um, mm-hmm. but it it also um, results in higher pregnancy rates. It results in higher STD rates. Um, people with who've had abstinence who've had abstinence only education are more likely to have oral sex. They're way more likely to have anal sex. So it's it's just a disaster. It doesn't work at all. Um, so they're doing that. They're tra- they just announced that they're um, going to uh, disallow you know r- restrict women's access to contraception. That was last week, right? And well, I mean, abortion, duh, right? I mean, yeah, that was like it's always been right. Um, and then um, on top of that, they're making it harder for women to report w- rape and calling women liars. So that constellation of things all together is what I look at. You know, that that all of those things are going on at once. I mean, that is so Handmaid's Tale, right? Yeah. I mean, any day now, you're going to be forced to wear a wimple, India. <laughs> it's going to happen any second now. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Um, you know what I mean, though? I mean, it's yeah. really, it is it is a wholesale attack from a whole number of um, sides, not just the side of ca- campus sexual assault. But yes, it's going to make it harder Um it's amazing to me in some ways that it's taken this, that it's, I mean, this started the, the pushback against sexual assault started in 2011. Um, it's amazing to me that it's taken this long for them to get around to trying to squash it. In yeah. the 90s, it took way less long in the first round. Hmm. Um, but I don't think they can. I mean, I really think that, I really think that um, a lot of campus administrators and certainly young women and a lot of young men are, are going to push back against this. Um, I think, okay, sorry to, yeah. Take so I think one thing that I've been thinking about a little bit different is um, as somebody who does sex education with both like my peers uh, in the college and also with seventh to 10th graders in the community. Um, so cool. I just did like the, our anatomy lesson, uh, not this Sunday, but last Sunday. Um, and the first thing I pointed out on like our vulva diagram was like, this is the clitoris. Um, and that was like a really important like aspect of like what I wanted to educate them about. Um, because it's such a, like a cool organ, like it's just there wait, for pleasure. Do you know that? Do you know the? Did you get the book, The Care and Keeping of You, when you were young? The no. American Girl book. So most, it's the most popular puberty book for girls, 
And there's caregeeping of you one, which is for younger girls. And then for like maybe when you're like 12, 13 or something, you get caregeeping of you two. And it has a diagram of the vulva mm-hmm. and they label everything except the clitoris. Interesting. I know. Isn't that amazing? So like, I was looking at it. It must be a coincidence. Oh my <laughs> God. Like, what? Who, who censored that? Like, who said, oh, we better not put that in? We can put everything else, but not that. Not that. <laughs> so I, I, I saw that on my daughter's copy. I have a 14 year old. Um, so I drew it in. <laughs> Gotta pity my wow. kids. Seriously. Yeah. She's <laughs> margin notes for your kid. <laughs> my daughter's like, oh God, mom. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I'm I'm really curious and this this especially applies too to my I have a lot of control over the the kind of stuff that mm-hmm. that we educate the seventh and tenth graders in because it's kind of like a it's the owl curriculum, but we really try to like Owl is like the best. Yeah, I really love yeah. it. Um but so I'm I'm for that I'm like, oh, I can kind of cater this to them and see what they want to know and what I want to teach them. But also uh, when it comes to my my peer education stuff on campus, we really t- like focus a lot on like preventing sexual uh, mm-hmm. sexual assault on this campus, and making it very like Oberlin specific. But I'm curious how I kind of we can integrate intimate justice into that curriculum and curriculums for kids like across the country mm-hmm. with our like comprehensive sex education. Um, how we can integrate intimate justice in the most effective way. I don't think, I mean, in terms of across the country right now, I don't think it's possible unless you're doing something like OWL, which is our whole lives, which is the Unitarian Universalist mm-hmm. um, curriculum, is is exemplary. I mean, it's really a model. And it goes from, um, and it's interesting because, you know, it comes out of a religious context, yeah. right? Um, and it goes from age five to like 60 something, yeah, right? Yeah, curriculum for... Wow. Yeah. So it's it's an amazing, amazing curriculum. Really beautiful. Um, so I think that that, you know, anywhere that that can be instituted, that's one way. And it's, I mean, that they have it for this age group. Mm -hmm. So that's one way. Um, but I think especially a place like Oberlin, I think framing sexuality in term, in these terms and really asking these intimate justice questions of young women and young men is something that people can really get into here and really get into, you know, discussing. So I think that that's a really great place to start is to sort of do that or, you know, like, um, I don't know. I did a TED talk on all of this. You know, you can sit and watch the TED talk and have a conversation about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that there, you know, there's some stuff out there um, that that allows inroads. I mean, I think this is a time when it's easiest um, to talk about it. It's harder for me when um, I get these questions from from parents who are parents of high school students and have never brought the topic up before. Not a great time to start, you know? I mean, you can, but it's harder. Um, But for you to do peer education, yeah, I think it's really important to have both sides of that because what I'm seeing is a lot of, especially among um, younger girls, high school girls, is a lot of fear right now around sexuality. Um, that they ha- that there has not been an expansion of their understanding of their bodies, their pleasure, their rights, their entitlement, um, but there's been a big expansion of their fear, mm. and that's really sad for, to me. Um, so I think that's a place, a really great place to start. But one of the things that I talk about in the book is the um, um, example of um, Holland, um, because they uh, it, they do everything. 
I mean, basically, we should all get wooden shoes. We should all just immediately <laughs> move to the Netherlands. But there was this um, study that compared 400 uh, randomly selected, demographically similar girls from um, a university in Holland and a university in the United States and talked to them about their early sexual experience. And the Dutch girls had, like, everything we say we want, right? They were, I mean, of, in terms of responsibility, yeah, they, you know, they contracepted, they protected against disease, they discussed those things with their partners, but they also um, enjoyed themselves more, they felt better about their bodies, um, they could ask for what they wanted, they could express their limits, you know, all the things that we think of as being like the hallmarks of sexual agency. Um, not so the Americans. And when they, you know, they had higher rates of pregnancy, higher rates of disease, they, they had more um, depressing experiences, all these mm -hmm. kinds of things. And when they asked the Dutch girls, like, what, what the difference was, or they asked both of them in, in, in interviews, they found that um, sort of like the OWL curriculum, Dutch kids are taught um, from a very early age about sex, sexual pleasure, and the importance of mutual trust and, and love, really, in relationships. And um, it was parents, doctors, and teachers who they said talked to them about this. And in particular, they talked about the difference between American parents and Dutch parents, that American parents tend... They talk to their kids just as much, but they tend to s exclusively talk about risk and danger. Mm. So we talk to our kids about birth control. We talk to our kids about STIs. We talk to our kids, if we're really modern, about assault, right? Mm. But the du Dutch talk about balancing responsibility and joy. And for me, as a parent... That, like, hit me between the eyes because I absolutely know that if I hadn't read any of this stuff that I would have talked to my daughter about those things. I would have said, you know, this is contraception, honey. This is, you know, this is a disease protection and this is assault and this is consent. And But I would not have done the other stuff. And now I know that that's only really half the job. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the big difference um, that we have to correct. And we have to think about pleasure-based sex education um, wherever we can do it, which is not going to be right now in, for instance, public school, but I think can be in other communities. And one of the great things about OWL is because it comes from a church community, um, it, it gets sort of more of a pass than um, if it came from, say, Planned Parenthood mm -hmm. in yeah. terms of politics. Yeah. How do you think, just, just to extend that a little bit more, for people who are our age, um, both sort of thinking about, you know, going forward, we're going to have kids, some of us presumably, and we'll talk to them about hopefully the, the balance of those things. But as far as gaining sort of broader cultural prevalence, because it's obviously not going to happen in the school system in the near future because right. of where we are politically right now. But how, how do we get to a point where um, we can start having a more balanced conversation does it is it on sort of people our age to start talking more freely about those things is yes. it related um, to <laughs> hookup culture like how how do you think yeah i mean i think that's some of it i think that the you know that there's also more room for that um kind of education in certain spaces on the internet mm -hmm. you know whereas um it wouldn't have been, uh, you know, there's a lot of out there that's not so great. Um, but there's places like, like right now, do you guys know OMG Yes? Yeah, that's so cool. That is the coolest thing yeah. ever. Um, it does cost $29, but yeah. kind of worth it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's really um, explicit, but it's not um, 
pornographic, I guess I'd say, on sort of the evidence-based, again, that the E word, um, ideas <laughs> about what um, about female pleasure and how female pleasure works. And then there's like this interactive component that I can't even explain, but it's really... <laughs> it's really wild. Um, so, so I think stuff like that. But I also think, you know, one of the things that I found in, in the book was um, that although I didn't write a lot about queer sexuality, the research that I did do with um, gay and bisexual girls was really interesting because whereas um, we didn't really talk about sort of the the ways that the different ways that men and women tend to define sexual satisfaction, because we think that we're talking about one thing when we talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but women have a tendency to um, measure their satisfaction based on their partner's pleasure. So they'll say, if, if he, if straight women, if, if he had a good time, then I had a good time. And men have a tendency, not all obviously, but have a tendency to measure their um, satisfaction by their own pleasure. So if I had a good time, I had a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so gay women tend to, in, in same-sex uh, encounters, I should say, um, women tend to sort of um, still have that orientation. So everybody's, like, focused on, like, everybody else having a good time. And the orgasm gap that you see between men and women in heterosexual encounters disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, and young women, or women, not young women, all women, um, in same-sex encounters climax at the same rate as um, guys in heterosexual encounters. Wow. So there's so so I thought that there was a real lesson um, to be learned from um, women who have same sex encounters for people in uh, other sex encounters, um, and also the other thing that uh, lesbian women really challenged for me was the notion of virginity mm. as defined by first intercourse. Um, because, you know, there's like a whole bunch of other stuff, especially, I mean, that's such a, it's such a, um, like a vestigial idea that we still do that. It's really kind of weird that that's still what we think of as being the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked this, um, one of the girls that I talked to who had only had female partners, whether she thought of herself as a virgin. And she said, no. And I said, well, how did you know when you lost your virginity? And she said, yeah, I had to Google that. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. And Google wasn't so sure either, she said. But she decided, after we talked about it for a while, she said, you know what I think I, I lost my virginity was um, the first time I had an orgasm with a partner. And I thought, whoa, what what if that was the definition? Mm. You know, like how would that, not, again, you know, not because intercourse, first intercourse or intercourse at all isn't, isn't important or, you know, isn't significant, but it's not the only significant thing. And, if we thought about that, and again, and also not that you know, orgasm is the only thing either. And and but but it's a way to shift our thinking about how we think about sexuality, so that rather than this race to a goal, it's more about a pool of experiences that include warmth and um, sensuality and affection and touch and all these different things um, that we can experience with a partner, rather than just this one thing that you know maybe won't even feel that great. Mm-hmm. I'm going to break in again. You are listening to WOBC 91.5, Oberlin College and Community Radio. We're so pleased to be talking with Peggy Orenstein, um, Oberlin class of 1983, and author of many books concerning uh, sex and sexuality. Um, I was wondering, Peggy, um, one of my 
favorite English teachers in high school for AP Lang. We read an excerpt of your book, Cinderella Ate My Daughter. You did? Yes, and it was so good. Um, so thanks to you, Ms. They probably Xeroxed it and didn't buy the book. So. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it, was, it was public school, so we were cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but it was great, um, and it was in this uh, unit we were doing on sort of advertising and looking at uh-huh. how um, advertising really impacts people's lives, and especially your book is so good at talking about um, like the, the impact, the cultural impact of how, um, you know, women are portrayed and how that influences young women. I was wondering, do you, or sort of, how do you, how do you see the connection between the Disney princess effect, which you explored in that book, and sort of moving on to college age and sort of hookup culture and things like that? What's the, like, the timeline or the connection? Mm-hmm. How are those integrated? Well, you know, I started on that book really because I had a daughter, you know, and and she had, we were, you know, like good... Um, Obi-dobi parents, we were raising her, you know, with whatever she wanted, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, but, and I live in Berkeley, California, you know, like I went from Oberlin to Berkeley. <laughs> um, so I pit stopped in New York, though. but, uh, um, and, she, and wherever we went, people were um, saying to her, uh, like, you know, the nice lady at the CVS grocery store would say, do you want a balloon? I know what color you want. Give her a pink one. And um, the guy at the checkout counter at the supermarket would say, um, uh, you know, hi, princess, every day. And finally, we um, we were at the dentist office and she, for her first dentist visit. And the dentist said, do you want to get in my princess chair and I'll sparkle your teeth? And I just, Whoa. like, lost. I was like, what, do you have a princess drill? I mean, I do not remember this moment where... That girls were supposed to be, um, I mean, sure, everybody played, you know, knights and princesses, and, but, but like this idea that you were supposed to publicly be referred to as a princess for three solid years and believe yourself to be. And, you know, so I wanted to go on this whole journey, let me on this whole journey that ended up with this book on what was going on. And what I was looking at was the, the sexualization of little girlhood, which was really a new phenomenon, mm-hmm. um, started, you know, in the 90s. And just accelerated like crazy in the 2000s. And what it was telling girls over and over was that how they looked was more important than who they were. And it was training them really to go from this kind of pink and pretty thing um, to this notion that they would hit when they got a little older of hot. And hot, which is, you know, like just everything's about hot, right? Hot is not the same as beautiful. It's not the same as attractive. It's this really narrow Sorry, I was just pausing because I was thinking about what I can say on the radio. Um, I can't say what I was going to say on the radio. It's a narrow, commercial, commodified, really unimaginative idea of sexiness that Ariel Levy, who wrote this great book, Female Chauvinist Pigs, reduces to two words, one of which I can't say on the radio. So can I say effable and um, uh, and sellable? Mm-hmm. Mm. And that pretty much is what hot is and that's what is sort of what what you know what girls are being channeled into so i think that was the direct link for me between those two books and i would get in all kinds of arguments with the girls that i interviewed about um various pop culture icons um you know like miley or nikki or whatever you know like what does it mean you know could beyonce say what she says about feminism if she didn't look the way she looks you know what does this all mean um and it's really complicated because I think that young women today are sold sold self-objectification as 
often the ultimate form of self-empowerment and self-expression. Um, and it can feel really good. But it also, that bait-and-switch aspect of it is so constant. So there was one girl that I talked to who um, showed me a picture of herself and she was going to a party and she was wearing, you know, the crop top and the little tiny skirt and high heels. And um, she said, I never feel more liberated than when I wear skimpy clothing. And I said, hmm, interesting. So we talked a little further and she, and she eventually said that she wouldn't have worn that outfit um, a year earlier. She was a sophomore um, in college because uh, she weighed 25 pounds more. And she said that some, she was going to, talking about going to frat parties, and she said some, you know, douchey guy at the frat party would call me the fat girl, and that would be bad for my mental health. So then you have to ask, you know, who gets to wear what outfit and be called sexy or whatever, and who mm. gets to decide, and how liberating is that really when the threat of humiliation lurks right around the corner? So it was looking at a lot of that, and ultimately, I mean, I talk about a lot of ways that self-objectification is a bait-and-switch for girls, but, you know, it also, if, if it led to more sexual enjoyment, more sexual confidence, more sexual agency, you know, I might say, no, all right. But the truth is, is that um, it's linked to less, satisfa less satis sexual satisfaction. That's a tongue twister. Um, and that what I was really finding was that that confidence that it purported to give girls was coming off with their clothes. Mm -hmm. mm. We are almost out of time, so we have time for maybe one more question. And I'm thinking to wrap it up, we could go for this one. Does that sound good? You can't yeah. point on the radio. There's no pointing on the well, radio. I've, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm sad we're running out of time because I'd love to talk about, like, uh, the gendered language that's used in your book and, like, how that can apply to, like, non-binary students or mm -hmm. trans students. But I think, yeah, maybe we should just go to our last question and we can talk about that further. Um, or people might have questions at your talk later today. Um, so if you could give an Oberlin student advice, um, like any Oberlin student advice, uh, what would that advice be given what you know about intimate justice and the research you've done? Don't have sex when you're hammered. Um, <laughs> You know, I think that in this realm, there's a lot of pressure to conform and to be, um, to conduct your sex life a certain way, and that that puts a lot of, that, that's the source of a lot of misinformation. And I think that we need to be, you know, being educated about sexuality, being truly educated about your own pleasure, about others' pleasure, and not just in a hedonistic way, but you know, I think that we that one of the things about the hookup culture that disturbed me was that it so dehumanizes other part your partner. And sex should be a realm where we are conferring more humanity in our partner. Whether you're hooking up or whether you're going into a relationship, um, you should be engaging with compassion and caring and joy and treating the other person with um, respect and um, wanting the best for them as well as for yourself. Awesome. Cool. Nice. Great. Thank you so that much. Excellent advice. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much for being here. Thank you all. Um, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, India. Thank you. Thank you, Peggy. I should say um, earlier you mentioned when you left Oberlin you wanted to be a midwife and an author. 
<clears throat> and my my mother happens to be an OBGYN, and so she was very excited when she heard that I was getting to talk to you. <laughs> and she told me that at, at conferences and things that she's gone to with midwives, OBGYNs, that they, you know, talk about your research and your work. Oh, that's so um, cool. So I think you have certainly uh, made it, if not surpassed, being both, you know, <laughs> both right in the middle. Um, you, you hit the sweet spot. Well, I really mean it that I think I really feel that my Oberlin values and my Oberlin education, as much out of the classroom as in the classroom, frankly, mm-hmm. um, is really where this work comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's an honor to have uh, Oberlin alumni like you doing great work um, and a good inspiration to all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and yeah, thank you, Dean. Thank Thanks. you, India. Thank you. Um, and uh, you have been listening to The Weekly on WOBC 91.5 Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm your host, Johan Kaffert, and thanks so much for listening.